Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at This to me is like the really fascinating material. We don't know what the answer is, but we're looking for patterns. I think we're looking at kind of a type of cosmic alchemy. The story slowly Still, a lot of people don't know that this technology actually exists. The possibilities here are pretty mind-blowing. Play that song for, uh, for Cobra Kai. I yeah. forgot about that. Yeah, we do. Rob has an uh, 80s cover band, guys, mm-hmm. that he does. Ah. So he's, he's, become, he's become well-versed in, in the world of 80s music. I have. Adam, you play guitar too, right? Nope. Keyboards. Keyboards, okay. Yeah, that's right. I think Adam Sane is the only one who's not musically inclined here. No, I am not musically inclined. <laughs> but he knows more about music history than the rest of us combined. Probably. Uh, what about that, really? I'm sure you know, I'm sure you know a little bit more, Rob. Yeah. You actually deal. You actually deal with the people that. Uh, you actually deal with the, the famous people. The whitey artists. So. Yeah. <laughs> well. We've pretty much started. All right, okay. Greg, I, I, I've I've taken a page from your book, man, and I've just started like starting the show instead of actually introducing the show. Oh so yeah, you're, well, you're, you're the one I that just the, I like sometimes give a date stamp, and I sort of if the person hasn't been on before, I give them a little bit of a bio. If it's something somebody that's been on before, I usually forget to do their bio. Uh huh. Yeah, well, I just like you know, I just like the flow better, man, than trying to uh, do it as like a the radio show kind of format. Yeah, people could read. Oh, they know I've what never done about. it like that. I think that's a I think that's a waste. We're not radio, so we shouldn't be doing radio. Right? right. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I was do I was doing that for a while, man, but now I. Yeah, you can tell when people suck when they try to t- sound too much like a professional radio show. 
Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. I mean, it's podcasting. There's no real reason to do that stuff. No, there's not anymore. at all. People don't, you know, somebody isn't coming onto it, like driving around their car and saying, oh, well, this looks interesting. I mean, they're going to come <laughs> to your site because they want to hear it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can do like the that. intro with farting for 30 seconds and people would still, <laughs> probably more people would listen. We could be like your show and just play the intro like 30 minutes in. You know, yeah. Sometimes I forget, it's like, oh shit, we didn't do the intro. Yeah. <laughs> Which one do you want to hear? The <laughs> I, I, I'm partial to the uh, it's Greg one myself. That's the one I'm partial to. <laughs> Just because I, I've heard the, uh, you know, hey, I, it's Greg. I was so many times. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, I was, uh, I was real surprised, man, by one of the people that you put in the book and that was, that was Ron Ormond. Mm -hmm. Like that really surprised me. Which one of you guys wrote that one? Uh, that was me. Okay. And the reason I did that or discovered the guy, uh, has to do with the origins of this book. Which uh, started, man, many years ago now, like 2010, 2011. How long did it uh, get me to write anything? Yeah. <laughs> a dude uh, named Joe Fex is a uh, photograph collector, and in particular UFO photographs. And he's acquired different collections, restored them, and all, did this stuff. And he had these, uh, it's called the Bob Beck collection of all these uh contactee photographs from the 50s and 60s. Beck went around to Giant Rock and different conferences. Anyway, one of the photos was Ron Orman. I didn't know who he was, and I mm -hmm. did a little research and found out who he was. Yeah, so there is a connection to us here in Nashville with Ormond because mm -hmm. he ended up here in Nashville. And my good friend, Dr. Future, who did, used to do the Future Quake podcast, he actually interviewed his son, Tim, who still, ah. who still lives here in Nashville. And a lot of that was in the context of, his, of uh, Ron Orman's religious movies that he did. Yeah, oh. yeah. Yeah, after, he, after the plane crash and subsequent conversion. Yeah, yeah. Which was an airstrip here in Nashville where that happened. Ah, so where he had the plane yeah. where he had the plane crash. And I was just recently <laughs> introduced to his film If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? Which yeah. has, it's pretty <laughs> classic. Yeah, we were I was showing Surfiel some clips from that the other night. Because he teamed up with like this um I guess he was a Baptist preacher named Estes Perkle. <laughs> and so he did like several movies. Like he did like that movie, he did uh, the Burning Hell, The Believer's Heaven. There were like I think Jack Van Impey was in that one too. And so wow. he did like he did like four or five of these things, man. I mean, this is the same guy who did like you know the Monster and the Stripper and the Mesa of Lost Women, and so yeah, and he yeah. uh, he had one of the guys that uh, he worked with a lot was a guy named Cecil Scaife, who actually was like uh, was one of the managers at Sun Records for a, for a long time. And at, at Belmont College here in Nashville, there's actually like I think a building named after him. So, but the one you're, interesting, you're like a 
You're like a Ron Ormond expert. <laughs> yeah, well, I know a lot about him. Like, well, actually, for Dr. Future Dr. knows Future a lot about really him. Dr. Future really is. Though, and, yeah. But um, but what's interesting is that uh, you guys are familiar with Negative Land, I'm sure. Yeah. The song mm-hmm. Christianity is Stupid. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's pulled, is stupid. Yeah. That's pulled from the Ron Orman movie, though if foot tire you, what will horses do? It's like a re- uh, re-education camp, and they're making the Christians watch uh, yeah. or listen to something saying over and over again, Christianity is stupid, communism is good. Okay. Right, 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 right. Yep. But this part about him being anywhere near the contact T movement, I had absolutely no idea about that. Well, like I said, I didn't have a clue who the guy was until I saw the photo, you know, and then did some more research on him and learned that, yeah, he was uh, he was a movie producer back then. You mentioned some of those films. I haven't really seen any of this stuff. Mesa of the Lost Women and The Monster and the Stripper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he made... Uh, Made a film called The Attack of the Flying Saucers, which apparently had uh, a couple other contactees, Reinhold Schmidt and Daniel Fry in it. And actually, I've been contacted recently, and I forget the fellow's name. I have his emails. He's been trying to get a hold of these, uh, and I I think he's got a line on uh, some of these UFO documentaries that were, you know kind of lost to the ages until now, I guess. We'll see what this fellow turns up with. But, um, yeah, Ormond was a uh, player, I write, how he got involved in uh, with Ray Palmer, something called in a flying saucer magazine, and he wrote this article called, I Found a Little Green Man. And you see the photo in the box, or the a photo in the book where he's, carrying this like beat up cardboard box that apparently uh, <laughs> carried the, the little green man. He has a cigarette yeah. in his other hand. So he was <laughs> making the scene. And uh, so that's Orman. I read the uh, story. I found, I found a little gray green man. I was able to uh, dig that up, whatever old magazine it was in. Orman also claimed to be a member of the United States Air Force uh, Auxiliary, that he was a colonel in the Air Force Auxiliary, and that he knew uh, him and Kenneth Arnold were uh, really supposedly associates, or they met. And that's where the uh, little green man story comes in, because there's also stories that uh, Arnold was doing some research into the whole little green man phenomenon. He was also at that time. He was also good friends with Bela Lugosi and Ed Wood, too. Well, that figures. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah, they were both the B or C or D filmmakers back, you know, no-budget filmmakers back in the day. So, they, yeah, no doubt uh, crossed some of the same uh, paths or worked with some of the same people. Well. I want to talk a little bit about uh, you guys, like your idea for this book, a which is called A for Adamski, is for Adamski, the golden age of the UFO contactees. And I just, I just want to get like, what was your criteria for including certain people in this book? Uh, why you kind of, why you ended in 1978? Why that date specifically? Well, that was kind of my thing, and we didn't necessarily uh, 
end on that date totally, but I wanted to come up with some type of you know parameters. And the the seventy eight was kind of like an arbitrary benchmark for me because uh, that's when uh, George Van Tassel died, and it seemed hmm. around that period seventy nine eighty is when this whole uh, Jerome Clark calls it the dark age of ufology really got uh, going with the uh, underground bases, and that's when so the Roswell came out. Mm-hmm. Roswell incident too. That's when Benowitz was started get. So the the stories uh, of these underground bases and all this uh, nasty stuff going on uh, became the what do you Norm. call? It? Yeah, or the pri- primary paradigm. Yeah, the one that but, all the conventions were built around at that point. Yeah. Um, well, last interview we did, Greg was talking about, well, you know, I think he was asked uh, the question, you know, what was the period? And a lot of people probably see it mostly as the 50s and 60s and that you could point at Betty and Barney Hill. They had their experience in 63, which was 63. Is that the right year? I think 61. I think so. Yeah, 61, I think. Oh, 61. Where you you started seeing this uh, demarcation between contactees and abductees kind of different uh, experiences how they perceive the phenomenon and uh, that's you know that story really didn't get a lot of play or got a hell of a lot more play in 74 75 with the uh, tv movie about eddie and barney hill which blew my mind at the time and so once again the from 1952 to 78's kind of arbitrary benchmarks, but they uh, kind of want to have some parameters, parameters, or you could parameters, <laughs> parameters, and be <laughs> you know it would be never ending. But you know, there's people that uh, go beyond that date, like uh, Omnic uh, Onik. She was kind of beyond that period. There's been other contactees. They don't really get as much attention as they did back in the day. Yeah, and I'm gonna try to what I want to try to do with this tonight is kind of talk to you guys about some of the more obscure ones because you know we've talked about Adamski, we've talked about George Hunt Williamson, Van Tassel, some of those other guys, but we should mention like. Another reason I think you guys closed it out at 1978 was Van Tassel dies. So I guess that there's no more of those giant rock conventions. And, you know, Greg, he took me out there back in June. And, but that had like, like, like those are very significant. And you guys kind of go over like kind of the significance of those giant rock conferences that they would have out there. Uh, should I? I've been yeah, there. Go ahead. Yeah. I started going out there in the ooh, late eight, no, maybe eighty nine, and that was ten years after anything happened. Um, there was uh, what what happened was in uh, early fifth. What was the first one again, Adam? I keep forgetting fifty three, fifty six, fifty six. Okay. Um, what happened was uh, Van Tassel met a prospector out there, Frank Kreitzer, 
Um, and Kreutzer had been, uh, he was being, the authorities arrived sometime in the uh, early 50s to um, question him because he was German extraction. And I've actually heard that he might have been hiding um, Japanese families out in the desert so they wouldn't go to the internment camps, which was another strike against him, um, if that's true. Um uh, so he became friendly with Van Tassel, told him about his operation out there and how he built a, a road out to the giant rock where he lived, and he called out these rooms. Kreitzer was the one that built built the airstrip and and um, and the rooms under the rock. So when Van Tassel got out there, it was it was BLM land, and I, I guess it was either kind of Wild West where they just set stuff up, or maybe he got in touch with the government and said, you know, I want to lease this for a dollar a year or whatever, and had the um, had the fly-in uh, set up there, you know, where people could fly in, the pilots could stop by, and his wife would uh, make them pie and hamburgers and stuff. And uh, uh, at uh, some point in the early 50s, 52, 53, 51, I think maybe, um, he said he had his first contact with some alien called Solganda. Um, and after that, uh, starting in 1915, he put out a book called I Rode a Flying Saucer, which always makes me laugh. It's like, what, did he put a saddle on it? And, um, <laughs> not I rode in a flying saucer or I rode around in a flying saucer. No, just I rode a flying saucer is the name of his first book. Um, and, uh, you know, with this contact established, meaning, you know, he'd actually met this person or said, said he met this person from uh, – um, I think he said it was Jupiter. But the early contactees pretty much stuck with uh, the solar system for their uh, um, for their contacts, for, or the origins for their contacts. Right. Anyway, uh, at that point, um, he started channeling. He would do channeling sessions under Giant Rock, um, became famous for that, and then um, started this interplanetary spacecrafts convention in 1956. Um, Adamski was there at the first one. I think uh, Orfeo Angelucci, George Hunt Williamson, all the all the famous ones, uh, and those went all the way up till 1977 or eight. When uh, one, he was dead, but it was petering out anyway because, as Jim Mosley said, a lot of quote hard ass bikers unquote started showing up. Hmm. So there was this um, there wasn't this like space brother peace and love thing. There were you know people out there cracking heads together and basically causing trouble. So. It was probably on its way out anyway, but with his death, pretty much uh, his death also killed the giant rock spacecraft conventions, which were amazing at the time. I mean, it was like the Burning Man of the time. Burning Man for saucer heads. Yeah, when we went out there with Walter, um, we went to the Integratron and there were all these rocks. You said they were from contact in the desert. I mean, is contact in the desert, I mean, is that does it kind of continue on that tradition or... No, oh, not really. I mean, it's a regular UFO convention, and it's yeah. got a heavy New Age thing, like most UFO conventions. Uh, they don't do it out there anymore. They've moved to uh, more uh, pricier digs at a um, uh, kind of an expensive resort out near Palm Springs. Um, so they're not. Well, they're, they're not. not no, they're not, they're not metal physics anymore. No, no. We used to go to metal physics when I was uh, a few years. Uh, I don't know, fifteen or twenty years ago. Uh, and um, do drugs. 
Sounds fun. Uh, mush, mushrooms, not 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 dangerous. We weren't like out there, like, you know, smoking meth or anything. We were. I don't out there if, doing mushrooms. It was a lot of fun. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, there was a big mushroom spray painted on the giant rock when we were out there. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, There's always something spray painted on there. I was out there within less than a week after it split open uh, in 2001 or two or something like that, and I wrote a story about it. And yeah, there was there was graffiti on it already. I mean, within a day after it split, people were out there putting graffiti on it. Um, and so they come out every once in a while, paint it over, and then of course they paint it again. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so I've actually got pictures of being out there before it split. Um, but yeah, now that big piece of it uh, fell off because uh, people kept lighting fires under it and yeah. um, the crack in the rock. And um, there was uh, uh, anytime it rained or got cold, there would ice in there would. would uh, Water would get in there and freeze and make the crack bigger. So finally, it just it just cracked open and fell. It was a sign, man. <laughs> yeah, supposedly, supposedly it was a sign, man. From uh, from either there was this big story that it was uh, it was prophesized in in uh, Native American lore. You know that uh, <laughs> of course. Any any time, yeah. Any time <laughs> there's some like weird thing out in the middle of nowhere, it's like it's it's the Native Americans knew. The, the Indians knew about this. Um, <laughs> they predicted. Yeah, yeah, as far as I can tell, I could never find anybody, any Indian tribe that actually said anything about Giant Rock, really. Um, I could be wrong. But as far as I can tell, it's just, you know, um, uh, spacey white people made it up. But um, supposedly there's a petroglyph of a scorpion on it, although I've never been able to see it that clearly. I mean, there is something, there is some sort of, Marking on the rock about I don't know twenty feet up. Oh really? Uh, yeah. Hmm. I guess I should have said something about it when we we're out there, so you could say I don't see it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a cool ass place, man. Just the whole area there. I mean, I, yeah, I'm, well, I'm from this to... part of this country of this country, man. So like being out in the desert was like a novelty to me. Oh yeah, yeah. To- totally different than yeah anything you'd see in your neck of the woods. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man. I- I actually, I'm going out there tomorrow, actually. Are you really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Barbara, hey, uh, Adam, Barbara Harris is giving a talk about a Giant Rock tomorrow at uh, the Morongo Basin Historical Society. Cool. Yeah, so I'm going to go out there and I'll probably stay one one extra night in Pioneer Town and um, do some reading, which I haven't, haven't been able to catch up on. Stay at a place with no Wi-Fi. I think that'll help. And uh, anyway, yeah, uh, the other cool thing about um, the giant rock is that you can see, we saw this there, that, that big piece of concrete that used to be kind of the pilot's lounge and bathrooms and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the restaurant might've been in there, but the, the real restaurant was a come on in, which was a little tiny building behind giant rock as if you're com- as you're coming up on it. Remember I told you there used to be a, a tile floor there and it's gone now. Yeah. Um, I remember you talking about that. Yeah, because people have run, you know, it's a um, it's an off road place now, so everything's torn up and there's shotgun shells everywhere. And um, when I first went out there, that floor was about probably seventy five percent intact still. So you could see the and this this happened over to what eighty five eighty eight ninety eight two thousand eight. Okay, thirty years now. It's taken for that floor to completely be obliterated by people running over it, and stomping on it, and beating on it, and you know whatever the hell else, peeling out on it with uh, 
with with uh, sand uh, dune buggies and stuff. Um, but yeah, those those th I have some of those tiles actually because I thought it was important to keep that. Uh, it was otherwise just going to be ground into dust, you know. Yeah, it pretty much is now. Yeah. So I have a few tiles that were trod by the likes of George Van Tassel and George Adamski, and <laughs> it's pretty cool when you think about it. What, what about the yeah. likes of uh, Major Aho or any of them trod by Major Aho? Oh, oh yeah, that's he, my, that's he my made little segue. Those, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would say Aho. Yeah, Aho sounds too close to another word that I. <laughs> well, that was the deal, according to Jim Mosley. That was his uh, what they derisively called uh, him. Some of the contactees was. <laughs> Major a hole. <laughs> <laughs> he is. He was kind of contentious. I, I've seen him. In, I've seen him in action. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's what I've heard. So what was his whole, one time. What was his whole, whole thing with his uh, spaceship that he was trying to build or whatever it was? OTC X one. Well, he assisted Otis uh, T. Car. That's where yeah. the OTC. Uh, comes in and Otis uh, Cars uh, supposedly had this uh, spaceship he was con uh, structed, constructing that uh, uh, he, uh, he claimed Carr did to be a prodigy of uh, Nikola Tesla. And so he started showing up on Long John Nebel's show uh, claiming that he was building this uh, Spaceship, the OTC X1 circular foil craft, it was called, uh, and it had this propulsion set uh, system called the Utron Electrical Accumulator, which sounds pretty bitchin'. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so they uh, hyped this big launch that was going to happen in Oakland. Uh, a Aho was a hole, however you want to say it, was involved. Aho was a, a player in the UFO field. He was always uh, traveling around the country, and he had, they teamed up at one point and started raising money for, for this uh, project. And apparently, Aho, Aho was going to be the co pilot <laughs> on this thing. So, anyway, they hyped this for uh, uh date I have here is April 19th, 1959. Really got a lot of press once again for, from Long John Nebel. He went out there for the big uh, launch of this uh, thing, but uh, apparently it never got beyond a prototype if he was even uh, serious. And on the day of the big launch, uh, Otis T. Carr was nowhere to be found. It left uh, Aho holding the bag. And of course, it never. Uh, never happened it uh, appeared to be a con job and uh otis t Carr was uh he later got uh, uh indicted put in a uh, prison for some amount of time for fraud due to this event uh aho was just seen as like a uh kind of a uh hapless dupe in the whole affair but uh mm. anyway that, that that's kind of the uh story of how aho was involved with the otc x1 debacle really sounds like some of the to the stars stuff <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
I think they're supposed to build a spaceship too. Oh, who knows what they're up to? I haven't heard that one about them building a spaceship. Yeah, that was one of their ideas. They wanted to really. They wanted to build some kind of inter, interstellar craft or something. That was one of the first. That was one of the first things that uh, I think that was in that um, news That's conference that he gave. Like we're going to build yeah. a spacecraft or you know something like that. <laughs> now, you, know, you haven't heard anything else about it, probably because I haven't said anything else about it since then. So that's some serious, serious, serious coin there. Building a <laughs> yeah. interstellar spacecraft. Maybe they'll get. Maybe they'll They're get. They're going to have to raise more it. than they have thus far. Yeah, that 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 is very true. One I find particularly interesting in this book, and I didn't really know a lot about him, was Orfeo Angelucci. And it kind of seemed to me that he admitted later that he felt like this was going on not in reality, Mm -hmm. but almost like a spiritual kind of, like a spiritual experience. He's the only one, almost like in this book, that I, I think could really admitted that maybe there's a lot more going on than just physical stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I got the uh, quote here. He basically, that's what, what he said uh, towards the end of his life. Uh, that, uh, And I have the, it's the last quote in the entry. He says, what I think happened was that I dreamed a lot of my experiences, which came back through my subconscious in these visions. I saw that show. Actually, I pulled that quote from the show. Um, I remember okay, seeing him yeah. speak. Yeah, he, he said it came back through my subconscious. I think he said as visions. But anyway, he was. Um, they had gone out, a local TV station, a public TV station went out and talked to him. And I was just sitting there watching TV one day. And this documentary came on about UFOs and giant rocks. I was like, whoa, wait, ho, whoa, whoa. So I... Um, I like it's like immediately hit record on the VCR and um, got most of the show. Uh, I probably still have it in the garage somewhere. I should digitize it. Um, oh, I, st- I I wrote this entry, but I stole that from you. Something else you wrote somewhere. Yeah, I, wrote, I think so. The show the uh, it was a PBS documentary called California Saucers. Ah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, you put yeah. that in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I had to watch it, and I, I remember seeing Angelucci in it. It's like, oh, my God, Angelucci's around? And so within, I don't know, a month or two of that being on for, for various ways, I, uh, methods, I found out where he lived. So um, I was going to go out and visit him, just go bang on his door, and he had died like a month before I started looking wow, for him. Wow, really? Wow. So I missed him by that much. Same with Gray Barker. I actually called his place two weeks after he died. His mother answered the phone. <laughs> so I go, Gray died last month. It's like, oh, geez, sorry. Oh, my God. So Because he put his phone number in his books, his home phone number, which was pretty amazing. Yeah. In, 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 in uh, Men in Black, The Secret Terror Among Us, which I think was his last book, um, he said, if you have any questions about Gray Barker or – or the or um, Saucerian Press, uh, give us a call at, and it was his home number. His mom picked up the phone. <laughs> That's pretty much all well, the resources kind of the they had. Cultiv- yeah, and Angelucci, I found out where he lived. I found out I didn't see his phone number. Somehow, I found out where he lived, and I was uh, going to go out there. And I don't know. I guess I saw his obituary or something like that. And it was, 
it sucked. Every every uh, these people I want to go out and see, but, but who's um, who's uh, uh, flying saucers of the three men? Uh, Albert um, Bender. Um, Albert Bender. Mm-hmm. Albert Bender lived in L.A. up till just about three or four years ago, um, and he lived right near the L.A. airport. And Jim Mosley published his address. I don't know why he did that. Um, <laughs> I was going to go show up at his doorstep with like uh, Nick Redfern was here. We thought about doing it. It's like, you know what? I don't want to go and bug him. He's an old guy. And we'll probably give him a coronary just by showing up and asking about you. Up post, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I sent him a letter. Did he answer you? No. No, I got it returned. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, the know, address was right. Didn't Bender kind of yeah. put all that stuff behind him though? Like he didn't really want anything to do with it after no, a while. He, did that's the other reason why we didn't want to bug him because yeah. he just got he got too freaked out by it and then he just he um, moved to California first to Bakersfield and then to L.A. and managed a hotel in Bakersfield. I don't know what the hell he did here, and I still don't know where he's buried. I think he's buried out in California somewhere, even though he's from um, New Jersey or not New Jersey. I'm sorry, uh, West Virginia. Yeah, wasn't he? No, I think so. I think, I think so. I think that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, where he had his like uh, chamber of horrors or whatever. Um, anyway, uh, he, yeah, he moved out here and, um, became, he became the head of the, um, Wolfgang. Oh, who was the, the composer in, in the films? Um, Mozart? I can't remember. No, no. Uh, it was somebody, <laughs> yeah, it was Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, the composer of the uh, 1950s. <laughs> okay, uh, <laughs> anyway, I can't, I can't remember the name of the composer, but he came, he became like, he like ran his fan club. Oh. Um, I, I found we should get back to the book, but I, I was at the uh, motion picture, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Library once, and I found an old issue of Variety magazine, and there was a picture of Bender standing on Hollywood Boulevard in a big trench coat with sunglasses on, because they were dedicating a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and like I guess he had um, uh, he, he had campaigned to do it. And so here's this guy that wrote Flying Saucers and the Three Men and started the whole Men in Black thing, standing on the Hollywood Boulevard in trench coat and sunglasses, getting uh, for as a fan club guy, getting this guy his star on the Walk of Fame. <laughs> Very weird, you know, uh, just out of context. I published it in Excluded Middle. I published the picture. Another one I found interesting, guys, was Michael Barton. This was Michael X. Uh, Michael X, yeah. yeah. Let's talk about him for a little bit. Well, he's a pretty obscure one. He, it's another one of these guys when I was going through these photos in the collection. One was for uh, Michael Barton, a.k.a. Michael X. and I'd never heard of him before, but uh, his story is, uh, like a lot of the uh, contactees, uh, he got turned on by... Uh, Went out to uh, giant rock uh, conventions and met with George Van Tassel and started having his own uh, experiences with the uh, Space Brothers using a method that he he used called telethought, which <laughs> sent his, uh, found a uh, way of meditating or something to uh, contact the uh, Space Brothers, not unlike a lot of uh, other contactees. And... Uh, and then he, uh, you'd see him on a, the lecture circuit uh, back in the day. He was went to a lot of Dan and Fry's understanding uh, meetings there in L.A. and would uh, speak and started uh, producing a bunch of different uh, 
writings and pamphlets on UFOs. And most notably, he was the first one, at least I'm aware of, who was talking about the connection with uh, flying saucers. And uh, Hitler and, uh, wrote a uh, Perhaps it was the first book, it was more like a pamphlet in 1969 called We Want You, Is Hitler Alive? That uh, <laughs> had uh, once again explored the whole Nazi UFO angle and that Hitler had been, uh, was now hiding in Antarctica and had a fleet of flying saucers or something. I used to in the tabloids in like the 1970s <laughs> you'd see these and I was kind of fa fascinated by that uh, whole thing and uh, so that was kind of his uh, claim to fame and uh, apparently uh, Tim Beckley shared the uh, story with me that uh, perhaps through um, you know looking into some of these areas like Adolf Hitler and UFOs he somehow conjured up the darker side of uh, uh, UFOs and uh, phenomena, much like, you know, Albert Bender perhaps did. Uh, and uh, I can read the little, maybe I'll read the little uh, passage to you here if you don't mind. Oh, yeah, no problem. Uh, if I can get to the right place here. And uh, Tim Beckley shared uh, this story with me. Uh, Beckley, like in the uh, oh uh, late nineties, two thousand, this uh, Michael Barton was uh, still around, but uh, he left ufology years before. And now was a UPS driver, and so Beckley wanted to republish uh, some of his stuff. And uh, at that time, Barton sh uh, shared this experience with uh, him, and it was the reason why he left. Uh, Flying Saucer Research, and uh, I'll read from the book now. During one of his meditations, Barton received a mental message to meet at a secluded spot in the Mojave Desert for a face-to-face -face with his otherworldly contacts so they could lay some, quote, important information, end quote, on him. After arriving at the desert rendezvous point, Barton set waiting in his car when he noticed a glimpse of some, something in the distance and assumed it was the E.T. saucer arriving. As he walked toward the object, a sudden sense of dread overtook Barton and an inner voice instructed him to retreat. Just before he turned around to hightail it, Barton caught a glimpse of someone partially concealed in the underbrush lowering a rifle which he now realized was the object that had glimmered in the sunlight. Afterwards, Barton speculated that some Illuminati-like secret society had somehow hijacked his telepathic transmissions in order to set up the <laughs> ambush. Not long after, Barton left ufology in fear of his life to become a UPS driver. So in the early 2000s, I was mentioning this before, Tim Beckley tracked down Barton in regards to publishing some of his old uh, books, and Barton consented with the caveat that his Nazi UFO titles be excluded from the mix. To this end, it could be speculated that the perceived threat against his life, which prompted his sudden ufological departure, was somehow related to Hitler's flying saucers in Antarctica. Art sky. You know, That's the story of Michael X. <laughs> uh, he he just got super freaked out, apparently. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, and he was always uh, he was 
that paranoia was building over time, probably, because that's the reason he uh, used the name Michael X for many years. He didn't want uh, whoever to know who he was. He didn't want them to figure out who he actually was. Them with a capital T. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was Max Steiner. That's the guy I was trying to think of, That uh, the film composer. Sorry. Oh, okay, okay. Okay. You threw me off with Wolfgang. That's what it was. I was like, what? Yeah, I know. It's just some other, some other silly, you know, some, some, some German name, but it was Max Steiner. It was the, the, the guy that, um, uh, Bender. Bender was, uh, interested in. Yeah. He went right off UFOs and right on to film composing music for some reason. Oh, probably because he was all into the weirdy, weirdy, scary stuff. So he probably played the music in his, uh, in his chamber of horrors room that he used to use to try and scare people. I bet there was a theremin. I hope so. I hope so. It is in his brain, at least. Yeah. yeah I want a theremin. <laughs> Go rightly has a theremin. Really? I do. Oh, he does. Awesome. I've, I've, I've tried to play uh, Telstar on it before. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't devoted enough time to it to uh, do anything cool on it yet, but all the, one of these years I'll break it out and start playing around with it again. Here's I think you should play it on my show just for two hours for just a solo <laughs> in the background. Yeah, we thought about doing that for this show, having like a special where you got to one of Surfiel's friends that's super into electronic music, just make a bunch of weird noises in the background. The giant modular synthesizer. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> or that, or have a or have a guest on that just talks about new age stuff, and every time that you ask them a question, as soon as they start talking in the background, you hear. You know, we, we didn't discuss it in the book, but uh, Desmond Leslie, who you know, oh right, plays a big role in all this with you know, uh, writing the uh, book with Adamski, the Flying Saucers of Landed. He he produced some experimental music, and I have it yeah. somewhere here. It's been a while since I listened to it. Yeah, yeah, I've got, I've got, uh, I think he put out one record. I got, I got the whole record on mp3s yeah it's it's a it's amazing i mean it's like this is the guy that worked with adamski this is he's actually it's actually pretty good stuff it's competent yeah, yeah. it's all like a like like electronic type of music yeah but it's very early it must have yeah. been like from the 50, 50s i think it's been yeah. a while yeah. since i listened I, to it but i remember the, it was pretty cool yeah the wep- the the uh record was called music of the future Sounds very cool. Appropriate. <laughs> I mean, I, wait, you can hear part of it. Can you hear any of it? <laughs> that's Desmond Leslie's music. Anyway, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> what was the date on that? Do you know uh, I don't have the, the, the date on it, um, although, no, no, the, the, there was a re-release of it in 2005. Um, Desmond Leslie, Music of the Future, if you look that up, it's probably sometime in the early 60s. Can anybody look it up like we're, while we're talking? Yeah, I, I can. Rob's, oh, on okay. Rob's on it. Rob's on it. Thank you. So, uh, Harold Bernie, this, this, one, um, this one really made me laugh. <laughs> Talk about uh, talk about you know uh, odd ways to try to leave your wife. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I, I need to give a nod to Nick Redfern. I think he probably the one who uh, dug up a lot of this stuff initially through uh, FOIA requests or files from back in the day, the FBI files the uh, having to do with this guy, uh, Bernie, who was a uh, consummate uh, con man. And uh, like uh, in the early uh, 50s, when this whole contactee uh, scene started, uh, Bernie thought he'd, uh, Her- Harold Bernie thought he'd get involved and try to, uh, whatever, profit from it in some way. And so he uh, claimed that he, at the time he had uh, what, he had a, a business uh, that he called the uh, Bernie Corporation uh, to make uh, antennas, TV antennas, I believe. You know, it was early in the uh, early days of uh, televisions, but it all seemed to be pretty much a uh, con. And he, anyway, brought in like. Uh, an older lady, what was her name, to be his uh, secretary and get her to invest. And somewhere along the line, he claimed that he had been contacted by the military himself and uh, high executives from uh, Westinghouse had been called together to meet with a very important visitor who turned out to be a uh, representative uh, from the planet Venus whose name was Prince Eucolis. I can't even pronounce the name. Who knows how who who knows how it was pronounced? U C C E L L E S. And he started sharing, you know, these this uh, information with his uh, secretary and uh, other another elderly elderly lady who invested uh, money that he uh, was uh, had joined into this uh, business arrangement with Westinghouse and the Prince from Venus to uh, basically bring some of this amazing uh, Venusian technology to Earth. And uh, he actually wrote a, a book about it that nobody's probably ever seen. I think if I can find here, it was called My Visit to Venus or something like that. Two weeks on Venus. Yeah. And I, <laughs> Got a timeshare. God, it was always <laughs> Venus. Why was it always <laughs> Venus? <laughs> well, that was the early planet. It was, it was uh, primarily Venus, you know, maybe because it looked like the best option that could support life, maybe Venus yeah. or Mars. It was blue. And uh, so, uh, anyway, this uh, he apparently, uh, Mr. Bernie, went to Venus on several occasions and uh, disappeared <laughs> at one point. It later appears he was using it as a pretext to uh, desert from his wife. And uh, his <laughs> wife received actually a letter from written by the uh, prince saying that uh, now Bernie was laying in state in Venus and he was you know, <laughs> seen like some great ambassador diplomat and uh, highly revered on yeah. Venus. <laughs> 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 anyway, they uh, later found him on Earth and uh, 
at, at the end of the day, I'm looking in the book here. He was in March of 1957. He was arrested on charges of wire fraud and interstate transport of stolen goods. Not sure what that was, but uh, uh, and he bilked investors to the tune of uh, $58,000, which was a good amount. Uh, convicted in December 1957 and print, uh, sentenced to prison for a term of 20 months to five years. Mm. Oh. Well, I got here his, uh, the album, uh, Music of the Future. He finished producing it in January of 1960. It was licensed. Oh, pretty early. Yeah, it was licensed and used on some early Doctor Who episodes, but it wasn't commercially released until 2005. Yeah. Which is where I finally picked it up. Yeah, I got a CD of it that I've uh, I ripped, and I've, I've got the entire album. I've never played it. I think I should uh, play it on my weird music show at some point. I feel like you've got to be in the right mind space for that. You kind of do. <laughs> I think I really might know how, really to, how to get there. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another one that's, uh, this one's kind of more like a religious experience, kind of. Uh, Michael Cecil. This oh, is these a, are all mine. Yeah, yeah, they're they're all they're all Adams. We're, we're, I think we got some of yours, Greg. I I think I've got oh, some. Oh no, of yours. no, I don't mind. I've I've, <laughs> I've taken plenty of chances to speak more than I should. So please go ahead. <laughs> the uh, Michael Cecil, yeah, he's a very uh, that's a very bizarre one. Uh, let's see, what did he call his book? My trip to hell on a flying saucer. Oh, is that Round Trip to Hell on a Flying, in a flying Saucer? Yeah, Round Trip oh, to Hell. I love that title. That's one of my favorite. T- I have it, too. I Just for the title. I've never even opened it. <laughs> yes, you have. We've okay, opened I might it together. Have. Yeah, it's, it is a bizarre, uh, bizarre book. The whole story is rather bizarre. Even the... Uh, There's some illustrations in the book that's like, wow. Because for the first, he... Uh, and this happened in Bakersfield, California, of all people, and uh, where uh, Mr. Cecil saw a UFO one night, and uh, he described it as the uh, – he, he could actually see into it, and uh, there was some odd-looking uh, – he said, what did he say? The two men at the controls were dressed in odd-looking headgear and uniforms, and the craft projected a 3D holographic image of a phantom city. And uh, what else did it say about uh, this? So, you know, that, that's kind of a weird one right there, that the craft was projecting a uh, phantom city. <laughs> Not your uh, typical... Uh, UFO sighting, but these uh, these ETs <laughs> or whoever the heck they were uh, showed up as, <laughs> showed up at his at his place of work, and uh, apparently he had ran an auto shop. And I did some research later, and as of a few years ago, the auto shop was still around uh, under his name, most likely yeah. uh, operated by his. Uh, uh, family members, or he might have uh, sold it. But yeah, the dude indeed had a. Uh, or actually, I think it was an auto body shop. But anyway, these these ETs showed up out of the blue one day, and they just hung around. They didn't say anything to him. He kind of acknowledged their presence. They had, uh, you know, 
shared some telepathic thoughts and uh, Cecil went about his business. He said they were dressed in tunic-like outfits with hoods and moccasins. The two men didn't really have much to say, but what they did say, they did telepathically. And uh, even though he was startled by by their appearance, he noted that the men seemed to be, quote, nice <laughs> and had beams coming out of their eyes. <laughs> oh, what's what's that cool? Sound nice to me. <laughs> what's cool, though, and I saw the when I was at Greg's looking at the illustrations in the book. Uh, I had an illustration of this that on one occasion he was able to observe green bubbles inside their bodies. Which was uh, pretty cool if you look at the illustrations in the book. And he also said that he smiled a lot and possessed remarkable minds. Hmm. So th- th- those are the original, you know, initially, those are the entities he made contact with. But then after that, his story got uh, increasingly stranger when he was, uh, and it all culminated with this uh, flying saucer trip to hell, which uh, I'll read from the book here and make it a little easier. He didn't uh, consider this uh, experience of physical reality as, as his body was still at his Bakersfield auto shop, but during the course of the trip, he would occasionally snap out of a trance and answer the phone <laughs> or complete some other task. However, once the task was completed, Cecil would again resume his flying saucer trip uh, that uh, apparently happened in mental space, though it seemed totally real to him. Anyway, Planet Hill, once he got there, lived up to its reputation. There was a burning lake in which the deads and their coffins were being cast in uh, into the burning lake and... uh, only to, cover, dude. <laughs> only to emerge as tormented souls on fire, I write, screaming in flesh-searing agony. Anyway, uh, I guess Jesus showed up at some point, and, uh, and <laughs> everything was all right, and he was transported back uh, to his auto shop. And this all happened going from one page to the next. Over the course of four days, he said, although the clock on the wall indicated he'd been gone for only four hours. Here's the part that I find. Once again. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I I, I pulled it down off the shelf here, so I've I've actually got the book. I was looking through it. Go ahead. Well, the the part that I found interesting was... um, Cecil's strange experience culminated with an apparent flying saucer trip to hell, an experience he didn't consider a physical reality, as his body was still at his Bakersfield auto shop. During the course of the trip, he would occasionally snap out of his trance to answer the phone or complete some other task. Come on, don't tell me you haven't had days like that at work. (laughs) However, (laughs) once the task was completed, Cecil would again resume his flying saucer trip that, although apparently transpiring in mental space, seemed totally real. Hold on a second, guys. I got to answer the phone. I got a business to run. (laughs) (laughs) And this guy wrote a whole whole book about this crazy experience. Yeah, round (laughs) Trip to Hell and a Flying Saucer. This was my edition. Was published by Roof Hopper Enterprises in uh, New Zealand. <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> yep. 
Adventure is no novelty to Cecil Michael of Bakersfield, California, whose entire life has been spent, both on the job and during leisure time, in exciting pursuits. <laughs> uh, I, imag- I imagine the book is very, very rare. It's also very, very short. It's um, 65 pages. That's like okay. a children's book. Oh, it's, you know? it's, it's, a, it's a pamphlet, <laughs> essentially, yeah. Yeah, it's essentially a pamphlet. Yeah, yeah. first New Zealand printing by Roof Hopper Enterprises, nineteen seventy one. Okay, so oh, oh, I see. Uh, Round trip to hell, person flying saucer, first published by Vantage Press in New York and copyright nineteen fifty five. So I've got a late, 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 late edition of it. Who wrote the Who wrote the entry on Buck Nelson? Uh, I think that was me. Yeah, that was. Okay. Let's talk about Buck Nelson and uh, Big Bo and all that good stuff. Little Bucky. Little Bucky. Little Bucky. Yeah, Bucky. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Which you got a picture of him next to Truman Bathroom of the... Uh, yeah, they both look, they look like a couple of farmers. It's great. Um, <laughs> yeah, he was the uh, Venusian dog hair guy. Um my other, I don't think we put the picture in there, but there's like a classic picture of him with a sign for one of his conventions he had at his farm. And it says saucer convention or flying saucer convention. The S is written backwards. <laughs> <laughs> and he said he's all he was always in his overalls. I think he's wearing them. I think they're they're Lee overalls. Wow. Way back when. Um, yeah. Uh, he, he, he um, his contacts. <laughs> His UFO contact, his space brother's name was Bob Solomon. I don't know where he got that name. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like Solganda or or, uh, Orthon or anything like that. It was Bob Solomon. Um, And uh, he had a friend that was actually from Earth named Little Bucky at a 385-pound, I don't know how they got the 385, but space dog called Big Bo. They had um, to weigh him when they got on the ship. I remember when reading that. Oh, okay. In the book. okay. Yeah. So I guess they, I guess they, um, I guess there was a a, 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 a a scale on the saucer that was measured in pounds, or maybe yeah, they, for for the flight manifest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to make sure you can clear those uh, those scales on the interstate uh, interstellar <laughs> highways. Yeah. The uh, the the. Uh, I read through um, Nelson's book. I, I found a copy of his book. Um, what my uh, my trip to Mars, the Moon, and Venus. Uh, the the thing that kind of surprised me, I didn't really know about the, until I actually read, started reading it, was that he was he was happy to see that uh, people on Mars practice racial segregation, and then everybody on, they all had their own area area on Mars where like different Mars races lived, and that and in this way they were all happy and could live. Live um, well, apart. <laughs> I don't know about together. They could live all, all live on the planet with no uh, with no with no problem. The people of Venus had no roads um, because they had hovering vehicles. No police force. No jails. No government buildings. And no wars. Um, oh, and the the ruler of the planet was actually actually wore overalls too. So Buck Nelson thought that was cool. <laughs> <laughs> See, overall segregation works. <laughs> yeah, so he's you know segregation would uh, you know solves all problems. No Martian um, race mixing. No, 
no, no Martian race war. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, that was the only statement he ever made. Was that was that book? It was one one you know thin book from uh, 1956, my trip to the moon, Mars, and Venus. Um, later, uh, somebody said that uh, uh, Nelson got to meet President Eisenhower, um, and the the, the uh, and the doctors learned how to do open heart surgery from Nelson, who, who was told, you know, how to do this by the Space Brothers. Um, uh, so, yeah, uh, Buck Nelson, like a lot of these people, were were quite uh, uh, quite hooked into the uh, hooked into the secret um, the secrets of the space people and how they interacted with the government and you know how had to keep their secrets and. Um, Oh, also, uh, the other famous thing about Buck Nelson is uh, he either surreptitiously. No, I think that the hair just fell off, but he got he got uh, hair off of uh, off of Bo, and uh, would sell it at saucer conventions as Venusian dog hair. <laughs> Although I think I think somebody figured out it was just like it was like pink or pink or purple uh, acrylic hair, like you used to get on those little like troll dolls. Uh huh. Um, so. Yeah, so it was. It was never. It was never analyzed. Uh, I don't think. But he was selling. I would love to have a pack of that Venusian dog hair. I, 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 he probably. He probably put them in little like wax paper packets and with with uh, scotch tape on them and sold them that way. I mean that that's in my in my in my imagination. That's what they were, and you'd have to like kind of rip the thing open to get to take a look at the Venusian dog hair. I, like I have some I can sell you. Oh yeah. Excellent. Yeah. How much? <laughs> it's going to cost you. It sounds like a uh, sounds like a name of a, a weed strain or something. Venusian dog hair. It should be. It should be. I went down and got some Venusian dog hair wax. Dude, it was oh man, you got to try the Venusian dog hair, bro. <laughs> it's better than anything. This is priest. It's pretty smelly, but it's like it'll it'll put you on another planet, dude. <laughs> oh, he also said that the space people had a book machine that would read any book placed on it, or play music, or show any pictures contained uh, in the uh, contained in the book. Basically, it was like a it was it was like a uh, uh, an i uh, an iPhone with um, with Audible in it, or something like that. <laughs> um, so anyway. He's uh, Buck Nelson was. I mean, he, he probably. I mean, you see pictures of him. It's like you look at you look at him, and he looks like a cartoon of a hillbilly. Mm. It's it's kind of frightening that you know he could be so typical looking. But yeah, he lived out in the middle of nowhere, out in um, the Ozarks. Arkansas. Yeah, in the yeah. Ozarks. Mm-hmm. I mean, he looked like a hillbilly from Oz- from the Ozarks. But, but he was a hillbilly some- from the Ozarks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's what's cool about a lot of this is it. It really gave a lot of people the opportunity to just totally reinvent themselves. And, you know, it seems like they really had a blast, if, if anything. Yeah. Well, the thing I like about a lot of these contactees is like there's no – they would just present – I don't know. They, I think probably some of them knew they were lying through their teeth. But I think most of them didn't. They just kind of believed their own story and just the honesty of – I don't know. The, 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 what, the honesty and the way they thought they were presenting it. And the total acceptance of um, people back then about what was going on. This was before – the internet so you had to really dig for your weirdness Mm -hmm. and so um this is like a you know unscheduled un uh un un, un unadvertised kind of uh social movement 
um, which is probably why the the government kind of got interested and thought that because a lot of these people were saying that people on other planets had a communal type of existence. Oh yeah, um, mm-hmm. where there was communal right. type existence where there was no money and everybody was taken care of, and you know, so that that kind of worried the FBI. And there's there's um, ample evidence that they were they were out there taking a look at these people to make sure they weren't uh, outer space uh, communist agitators. Space hippies. Yeah, they were goddamn space hippies. Yeah. <laughs> Here's one that I found particularly interesting. Uh, it's a short, it's a short entry, but on Omnek Onek, and at least the body she inhabited was from my hometown. So, found that particularly interesting to me. I I had never heard of this person before, at all. Oh, from Chattanooga, you mean? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Omnek Onik. I wrote an article on her at uh, UFO Mystic a long time ago. It was called Omnek Onik, the Hot Venusian. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, there was a there were a few um, not 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 too many uh, female UFO contactees, but Omnek Onik was one of them. Um, she said that she uh, inhabited the body of a girl who died in a bus accident in Chattanooga in 1955, um, and then grew up. Uh, uh, and it, it grew up as that girl, except you know she was uh, she was from Venus, and then um, uh, in the early '90s, I think there was a, a book called "From Venus I Came" with a picture of her on the front cover. And most people would buy it just for the cover because it's like there's a really it's a really beautiful girl on the cover. If everybody from Venus looked like that, I'd have bought it too. Um, they're very <laughs> a lot of these contact ebooks are really expensive now. Um, yeah, but, but sometime imagine. in the last in the last last twenty years, somebody realized there was a market for these things. So, and then plus with uh, eBay and um, uh, AB Books and Bookfinder and all that, uh, the, these prices were uh, established. But that's the only book she put out, and I think it was it was one of those Wendell Stevens books. So they all have basically the same cover with the same font on them, like you know, and one image and like a flat color cover and like yellow title and. Um, uh, she also, another thing I found when I was doing research on Omnek Onik, which I didn't know when I first wrote the article was that, uh, uh, in 2008, she, uh, uh, her former husband wrote an article about her called my ex-wife was born on Venus and, <laughs> and said that they got, I'm, you know, I'm not going to read through what I wrote here, but apparently he said that, um, he's, uh, he, he, uh, met her went like when they were hippies, like in the sixties, I think. Yeah. Middle sixties, um, got married. And then after a while he, you know, he, I think she started claiming that she's like, look, I'm, I'm from another planet. And that probably freaked him out a little bit. Um, they got divorced. The cool thing is that he wrote the, wrote the article and he said, you know what? I actually think she was from Venus. She was like, you know, she was totally committed to it. She was weird enough that she could have been from Venus. Um, and uh, she moved to Europe for a while and I guess got a following there. And then sometime in the early 90s, she was actually at one of those Laughlin conferences, uh, the International UFO Congress, when Bob Brown ran them. Um, and I believe I saw her there. Uh, and she, she, you know, she's, she, still looked, she still looked pretty good for her age. I, I guess she was born in probably around 1950 or so, maybe a little bit before, a baby boomer. Um, uh, I think the trail's gone cold on her, but I, I think recently, what did I say here? 2016, um, she was on a TV show and was talking. I, I saw a clip of her talking 
Um, she has three grandchildren, four grown children, and um, yeah, she appeared on videos recently, it's 2016. So I think she's still around, but not not in the greatest of health. But uh, I never read from Venus. I came, but it was space. Uh, basically, uh, uh, I came from Venus. We don't have any wars there. We can take a good lesson from the space. People. That, that's basically most of what contact the literature is. This planet sucks. Space people know it sucks. And if we took their <laughs> advice, everything everything would be great. And they're just trying to help. And why don't we listen to them? And I, I, uh, that's pretty much what uh, Omnic Onyx uh, uh, message was. Um, and for a while, people people were listening to her. Like I said, there's hardly any female contactees. I think we located a lot of them for this book. Uh, Molly Thompson was an, another one of my favorites who I'd never seen really entered in a, as a contactee in any of the literature. There were a few couples too, right? I thought that was cool. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, yeah if you yeah. can convince your spouse to go along with you on this, uh, on that journey, I mean, that, that, that's some relationship goals there. Me and Adam were talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it broke up as many couples as it, as it uh, right, right. formed because <laughs> as, uh, Truman Bethram left his wife for uh, Aura Rains and, um, Oh, who was the other one? Uh, 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 Howard Menger. He he left his first wife and then married um, Connie, uh, and they were together for the rest of their lives. Um, he was he was kind of a he was he was kind of an unstable one. Uh, I think he got in trouble for like waving guns at people every once in a while until he finally calmed down. Um, Mosley said that he was he wanted he plugged in one of his free energy devices. I don't know why would you would plug in a free energy device in a um, in a in a hotel, I guess to get it going. But it was in a hotel somewhere in Florida at some convention, and Mosley said it blew all the fuses in the hotel. <laughs> I I also. Also read another anecdote where uh, Minger was on uh, Long John Nebel and he brought, yeah, some free energy device or something that uh, broke while he was displaying it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a picture of him somewhere with it. He's like looking at this thing. It looks like it looks like a little this little three pronged thing that just spun on a on an axis on a, on a little stand. That's probably yeah, what broke. It just fell apart as he was uh, <laughs> explaining how it worked to. Uh, he also Long put John out a, a record album called Music from Another Planet, which is amazing. Um, it's well, god it's, awful. <laughs> yeah, amazingly god awful. Um, it's amazing to me because not too many people, with the exception of Molly Thompson, ever did music, contactee music. And I've described the music. I think he just played it on a um, like a, a home Hammond organ or something. Basically, to me, it sounds like depressed organ grinder music. That's that's basically what it sounds like to me. But the whole first side is just him saying, "My name is Howard Menger," and, you know, and saying, uh, "It's this in the music I'm channeling from Venus or whatever." Yeah, he said the 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 story I am about to relate to you are is based on true facts, and like the, there's all this echo in his voice and everything. And he talks about how he met his first contact and how she was a beautiful woman and. Um, and uh, and that uh, he was walking through the woods and, and boarded a ship, and one of the people on the ship had a keyboard and showed him how to play, even though he never knew how to play a keyboard before. Um, it just it's just the most it's just the most normal maudlin, <laughs> dumb music you could ever imagine. But apparently, it was channeled straight. I mean, it was brought through straight from the space people. 
Um, so the entire second side of the album, like the first side is like 12, 10, 12, 15 minutes of him ta- telling his story. And the other side is, is this um, strange, echoey, um, um, uh, organ grinder, accordion sounding music. Um, and uh, it, it's just, to me, it's amazing to have these documents of, uh, of the time of just people talking. And plus you get to find out how he pronounced his name. Also, there, there's recordings of Adamski I have, and he calls himself Adamski. Mm-hmm. 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 I, I've heard that. Yeah. 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 So another female one, um, Ruth Norman. Now, Oh God, Ruth Norman. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if, he, I mean, I know that you went there, Greg, to that, to the Unarian, cause you got a picture of yourself in there, but, uh, uh there's like a movie that's, uh, uh on YouTube that you can find. Uh, it's one of their Unarian yeah. movies. Like it's some crazy stuff, man. I mean, yes. <laughs> just, just <laughs> some of the craziest stuff. And I was talking about Ron I think Orman. It's called the Arrival. Yeah, yeah. I was talking was about done, Ron Orman it was done earlier. In the 80s with with crappy uh, effects. Go ahead. Well, I was talking about Ron Orman earlier, and I was telling you about the uh, Believers Heaven, which you can find a clip of that on YouTube as well. And that kind of reminds the the thing that it most reminded me of was the Unarian movie from the 70s. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, that I remember. I don't remember where I saw that first. Maybe they showed it to me when I went and visited. Yeah. The first, the first article I ever wrote about anything, um, I think of anything. I mean, not even the, not even just UFO <laughs> stuff, but ever. Um, in 1987, I went there, and they were like everybody there was so nice. It was almost embarrassing. It's like it made, almost made me want to join. It's like, wow, these people are really cool. <laughs> That's how They're they really suck nice you in, people. man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're complete yeah they're completely nuts but like they're the nicest people i you know some of the nicest people i ever met um they showed me the you know the, the headquarters and showed me all the books they gave me a stack of books just like i probably 10 books i still have them um and they showed me their um video production facility which is all three quarter inch tape at the time um and they, they had all the, you know, they had all the right equipment and everything. I already was working in vi- video at the time. It's like, wow, they spent some money on equipment um, to produce their, their, their films, you know, their, whatever the, the stories that uh, Ruth Norman channeled. She was, uh, I think she had like what, three failed marriages or something born in 1904, died in 1971. Oh no, that was her. I'm sorry. That was her husband, uh, uh, Ernest Norman. Um, she met him, I believe during world war II when he, uh, uh, he got a he got a 4-H or something like that, and he was um, he was giving psychic readings during World War II. They met in 1954, and um, uh, uh, Ernest started was was channeling by that point. So Ruth Norman uh, would uh, would type up his channelings, and they they sold these books. Um, and sometime in night, uh, yeah, in 1956, they wrote their first book. I mean, the first channel book, The Truth About Mars. Ruth Norman channeled for the rest of her life. I mean, they probably produced like 100 books or more. They must have given me half the books they had at the time because they gave me quite a stack. Um, and uh, they ended up in San Diego, actually east of San Diego in, in El Cajon, which is a community in the east side of San Diego County. Um, and uh, uh, Ernest basically ran ran the show until he died in 1971. Um, Ruth ascended the, the throne and became uh, Archangel Uriel. Mm-hmm. At least that's what yeah. that's that's what she said her name was or her reincarnated name was. What the, the belief of the Unarius is almost kind of like a little like the uh, 
Scientology thing. You were born on another planet and you have to work out all your karma that is, is, uh, uh, that was, uh, incurred on in your other lives on other planets. And if you were a bad person, you know, you've incarnated on earth so that you can uh, work out that karma and become a better person. So everybody there was like, you know, their, their whole thing was, um, whatever psychological problem they had, whatever it might be, was basically because they had a bad life on another planet a long time ago. Um, and then it's somehow Ruth Norman would help them figure out. Yeah, that's the they theme of that out. movie. Yeah. 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 Where they uh-huh. came from and what their karma was and what they were trying to work out and how they, you know, they're just trying to help. I mean, it's, it sounds totally insane, but a lot of these groups, they're just, they're, um, the, the, the Ethereum people are like that too. George King's uh, group. They're all just, you know, they're, they're really nice. And they, and the thing that really draws me to a couple the, the groups like those two that are still around that began in the fifties is that they could not give less of a crap what you think of them. And they could not give less of less of a crap if you join them or not. They really don't care. Yeah. They're not like like Scientology. Yeah. Yeah. Just come and join us if you like it. If you don't, that's fine too. And if you join us and it's not for you, well, you know, good luck. They're not going to hunt you down. No. I mean, how, how much, (laughs) how much cooler could you get than that? So space mothers brothers must be doing something right. Um, in, in 2001, they did the, uh, Unarius said they were, the, uh, space people would arrive in these giant ships and like stack up like a big, uh, a big layer cake, uh, on this property they bought in East San Diego. Of course that didn't happen. So, um, as far as I can remember, it's just kind of one of those, well, you know what? The space brothers decided it wasn't time because people actually drove out there in 2001, I think on new year's day or new year's Eve and sat out there at this, at this empty field that they bought out east, east of San Diego to wait for the space people. And they never came. So they're still waiting. Uh, they used to produce some um, videos on a, or a show. They had a show on cable TV in San Diego and they would, you know, when Ruth Norman was alive and well, she would come on and, give talks and speeches and, and, and lessons on, on the show imagine, um, that they imagine, produced out of the uh, headquarters. Imagine seeing that high as hell at three o'clock in the morning. Huh. Shit, you wouldn't even need to be high. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Ruth Norman, uh, stuff, Greg, um, I've known about that stuff for a while because I actually got this book from a, a bookstore a long time ago that had a cover picture of her on it. And, uh, it was, it was a book called kooks. <laughs> Oh yeah, oh, yeah that's book. Great. I wrote the entries yeah. in that for that. That was who I wrote the article for. Really? You 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 yeah, wrote, wrote it for that book? magazine? Yeah, I have yeah, that yeah, book at home. Awesome. That's yeah, like that's me. Eutherius, you, you, Eutherius, and Eutherius. I that was my first article, and I wrote it for Donna because I saw her book, uh, her magazine on the newsstand, and I wrote to her. Or no, I looked up her phone number in Boston, and it was her. And I called her up and I said can I write an article for you? And she said, yeah, sure. Go ahead. And she paid me and it was amazing. I, I brought that book in Atlanta, like 15, 16 years ago. <laughs> yeah. It's a classic. Uh, Feral yeah. house. Oh, is that Feral house that put that out? Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. She came out and uh, visited uh, Parfrey. And when she was out here, we, we kind of hung out. I'd, I'd never met her. And I met her when Kooks came out. And that was, you know, I'd known her since the magazine. So the book came out, what, like 10, 15 years later? So I finally met her and hung out. Hmm. Uh, let's talk about a couple more. One that surprised me uh, as, a, as an alien contactee, because uh, I think of her in a totally different context, uh, Marjorie Cameron. 
Yeah. Um, she was another one. Initially, I probably wouldn't have put her in there, but then uh, other inf- information surfaced. You know, in the last oh two or three years, I thought, oh, it looks like she might be a fit because uh, one of the reasons is she was friends with uh, George Van Tassel. I learned, which just blew my mind, and. Uh, Later came across a photo, which is in the book of her standing uh, right before Giant Rock. So there was that great connection. But uh, according to the lore surrounding her and uh, Jack uh, Parsons, uh, you know, Parsons was doing the whole Babylon working thing with uh, L. Ron Hubbard. This was like uh, kind of just at the beginning or prior to the contactee movement in the late uh, 40s where legend says that uh, while they're out conducting this ritual in different places, including the Mojave Desert, that they made contact with some type of entity. Uh, Some sources like uh, Jim Brandon in Weird America, I think it was, or someplace, uh, suggested it was Venusians. I haven't seen a lot of confirmation on that, but you know that would uh, put uh, like uh, Parsons and Hubbard right into the contactee uh, camp if they were contacting Venusians in the late forties, early fifties, <clears throat> and that uh, during this period, uh, Marjorie Cameron came on the scene and uh, supposedly showed up on uh, Parsons' doorstep one night just out of the blue and they uh, became became an item. And uh, yeah, His Scarlet Woman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to play the role of the Scarlet Woman in the uh, rituals, it was basically they were calling down a magical child into the wo- womb of this... Uh, the female participant in the uh, Babylon working, uh, who uh, she didn't know it at the time because <laughs> they didn't tell her, but uh, Cameron became the Scarlet Woman in this uh, ritual. Now, there's a story that, uh, right, I'm trying to remember the details of this, uh, right. Prior to uh, Cameron showing up at uh, Parsons' house when they first met, uh, he'd had a uh, vision or he'd had a UFO uh, sighting of a uh, cigar-shaped ship. Then Cameron showed up and he considered that a sign, you know, that uh, she was the one to play that role of the uh, Scarlet Woman. And... uh, then Parsons himself uh, died on uh, in 1952, as I recall, just prior to all the sightings of that over the Pentagon of whatever they <laughs> saw there. And Cameron also took that as a sign as well that uh, there was this connection between what Parsons was up to and UFOs, etc. And uh, as time progressed over the years, uh, she developed into a artist and started channeling a lot of uh, paintings of like interdimensional beings. And I actually I got a chance to see some of this stuff. There was a show in L.A. a few years back, and I actually bought a uh, 
cool book that shows uh, a lot of those uh, different paintings and stuff she did. A lot of it, uh, unfortunately, she destroyed at one point, and uh, a lot of the materials in this exhibition were from paintings and stuff she had sold to other people that were pulled together back into this exhibit. And uh, so anyway, at one point, yeah, she ended up out there in Pioneer Town. Greg mentioned Pioneer Town earlier, which is, is a stone's throw from uh, Giant Rock and became uh, friends with uh, George Van Tassel. So that would have been fun to uh, hang out under the rock and hear them swap tales. Yeah, really. She was a pretty fascinating person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've started to yeah. think that she was much more, actually, more fascinating than uh, than Parsons was, really, <laughs> in many ways. You know? Yeah, the, well, there's a lot of aspects to her life, you know, after Parsons. I mean, that was just the beginning. Right. She moved to Mexico in that artist colony there. I can't remember uh, the name. Then later she was in uh, San Francisco, and there was some... Uh, as like during the whole beat movement period, and there was uh, a couple of years ago, there there were some uh, movie reels that came out of her at a like a street bazaar in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and then yeah, I've uh, seen those. Yep. And then later, she was in some uh, Hollywood films and a film with a young uh, Dennis Hopper, and became kind of a. Uh, uh, I guess you know uh, a hippie of of some sort. And now yeah. we have now we have a um, TV show about Jack Parsons, and I don't know. If, mm-hmm. I haven't watched it, so I don't know if there's if she shows up in it. But either have I. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't either. I I don't know how she couldn't. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. She was pretty integral to the whole thing. One last one that I read today, actually, uh, Andy Sinatra. No relation to Frank. That. No, that's what I uh, said in the uh, book. Uh, at least, uh, no relation that uh, Frank ever acknowledged. Same initials as Adam Sane. Uh, exactly. Yeah, it's <laughs> <a> coincidence. <laughs> yeah, I think not. So he was known as the Mystic uh, Barber. Was his <laughs> handle at least one of his? Uh, Titles, I guess he he was also called. I'm pulling up the entry here. The uh, what did he call himself? The uh, mystic mystic tonsorial artist from Brooklyn. <laughs> and uh, he's another guy that was uh, really came to public attention through the uh, Long John Nebel show. <laughs> Nebel would have all all these <laughs> contactees. On his show from, oh, you know, some that sounded uh, somewhat reasonable to guys like uh, Andy Sinatra, who uh, are pretty off the wall. Um, There's a, uh, looking at the uh, entry here, he claimed he, uh, let's, that he was from Mars originally, and that, uh, yeah, originally from Mars, Sinatra at some point was psychically transported to Earth where he came to inhabit the body of an Italian barber from Book- Brooklyn. However, Sinatra was quick to point out his present appearance was quite different 
from the average Martian that stood four feet tall and was covered with white hair and reproductive organs on their heads. Hey. Hey, now. (laughs) You don't see that every day. And so... He became famous for this uh, psychic headgear he (laughs) wore, which you can uh, see in the book. Uh, I've seen – there's a lot of different photos. A lot of the uh, earlier photos, it was uh, pretty primitive uh, headwear, like a metal band, you know, your typical uh, tinfoil. Oil hat, then the later versions had like this bazooka thing coming out of it. <laughs> and uh, at some point, uh, he uh, staged this big event uh, in front of the United Nations where he was uh, basically calling down the uh, Space Brothers, or the Space Brothers uh, inspired him to uh, basically put on this event to uh, save the United States. Nations from alien attack from the, I guess he was working with the good aliens against the uh, bad aliens. And those photos uh, later showed up in Saucer Smear or Saucer News by uh, Jim Mosley. So (laughs) Mosley was somebody who got a uh, kick out of his uh, story. I write at the end of the book, the mystic barber's greatest claim to fame came on September 10th, 1962, when he attempted to make contact with flying saucers on a live broadcast of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. According to Jim Mosley, Sinatra got stiffed for a $100 appearance fee because his performance was, quote, incoherent, end quote. (laughs) (laughs) And if you listen to him on uh, some of those uh, <laughs> episodes, episodes of, of here in Ed, 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 Ed. Getting Echo. Oh, there you go. I then said I was homesick. Dang. Yeah, he just goes on. He's got this heavy Brooklyn accent. Look, the look, the alien. They come and talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> so he was a character, and you can see from the uh, <laughs> photos in the book, he looked like a character. Oh, I'd like oh, to yeah, see video. Yeah. Of him. Is there any video of him, like up on YouTube? I haven't actually looked. Not that I've seen, huh. but th- maybe the Carson footage. Uh, Perhaps that's uh, still around. It was funny. A lot of the, a lot of those '60s or shows back in the day. A lot of that footage uh, doesn't remain. You know, a lot of it years ago they destroy stuff like that just to make space for <laughs> you sure. know other shows. Greg, are there are there any that uh, like? ones that's like your guys favorites that uh stand out to you that because i'm sure out of all this we barely scratched the surface on talking about this tonight one that you particularly like oh i i I know which one i particularly like um uh paulina peavy um that's somebody i found just by doing research for the book, I, I found out that she was an artist. She was born in 1900, died in 1999. Um, wow. She grew up, I don't, I don't know if in poverty, but um, 
She did a uh, show with Andy Sinatra. Yes, she was on Long John Neville, and she channeled her her alien uh, her alien guide named Lacaimo um, while he was while she was on the show with with uh, with uh, Long John Neville and Andy Sinatra. You, it's funny you can tell when you listen to the show that he's just itching to get in there and start talking again. <laughs> like, but okay, John, Long John, I'll I'll shop for a second. Yeah, um, the uh, Paulina Peavy comes on and she's got this mask she she you can look her up online um there's a site that uh somebody maintains with her artwork and she's at gallery showings and all this um you know post uh after after she died uh she got discovered of course um but yeah she her her father refused to send her to college because he said that uh, uh education was wasted on women um, so she basically ran off and went to put herself through college, I believe, art school. And then she met some guy, and the guy was abusive and a drunk and beat her and all that. So he, she finally left him, and then she had these two kids she had to take care of. She didn't have enough money, so they had to go to an orphanage for a while till she got a decent job. Um, she did not have an easy life. But she said sometime in the 1950s, I believe, strangely. No, no, it was earlier. It was the 30s or 40s. I'm not looking at my, uh, my write-up here because this is, she's my favorite. Um, she said that she went to, she lived in LA for a while. So she went to Long Beach and visited this woman that she said that who said was a, was a psychic or something like that. And she told her she had a guardian angel or something like that. And this became this, this, uh, um, space person called that she said was called Lakaimo that would tell her what to, you know, would give her advice and, and chance she would channel her artwork, um, from this alien person, um, and she wrote a book, I think, a self-published book in the 50s. You can see it online, too, if you go to the the, the site, the Polly and Peavy site, called My Life with UFO. I think it's not even My Life with a UFO. There's no pronoun. It's just called My Life with UFO, where she talks about how, you know, her lifelong contacts and, you know, um, what her relationship was with this with this being. She, there's drawings of the being, too, which are amazing. They look like – they almost look like somewhere – Something like uh, Stanislav Sukowski's stuff a little bit, the style. Um, uh, I'm looking at her paintings right now. They're beautiful. Yeah, they're absolutely they're stunning paintings. I've actually one of them's on my desktop right now is my computer desktop because um, I think they're 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 amazing. They're they're um, abstract. Uh, the ones that are on there, she did stuff that wasn't abstract, but uh, but she. Um, she, she had a long and successful life as an artist, and she was teaching art in Los Angeles City School District for a while to make money. That's how she got her kids back from the orphanage. She, she got that job. And she claimed that she exhibited in galleries in L.A. And on the website, her website, it's, it's, uh, that's maintained by I don't know who, I guess a gallery. They said, we can find no evidence that this happened. I found it. I was looking through newspapers and I put her name in and one of the ads, an ad from the 1950s came up with her name in it for one of the galleries she said she exhibited at. It was an ad saying, you know, Paulina PV New Works, you know, February 25th through March 18th or something like that. So she was a working artist with uh, with gallery presence in Los Angeles in the 1950s. She moved to New York after that sometime in the late 50s. I think it stayed there for the rest of her life, which is how she ended up on Long John. Hmm. So, you know, not specifically somebody that she's that was a contactee in the classic sense, because um, a lot right. of the, not a lot, but many of the entries in this book, we kind of expanded the our definition. Anybody really that had any contact with, uh, they said, with uh, space people, 
we would consider a contactee. That's how Wilhelm Reich got in there. So it's um, and and uh, Charles Hickson, who had repeated contacts, he said with the uh, the Pascagoula guy, with the space, space brothers or space people that were telling him that you know he was supposed to you know bring a message of peace and uh, peace and love to the to the Earth. That that is a classic contactee message. But you don't think of that. All you think of him is him and Calvin Parker getting picked up and examined by those things that look like Kachina dolls. Yeah, those so, weird creatures, right? Yeah. Yeah, you can I see. I was actually, wondering why you, you included, why you guys included them, because that seemed to me like a more of a classic abductee, but then you have that message involved. Yeah, if you read the book, um, UFO Contact at Pascagoula, that he. Um, he co-wrote or probably dictated to this guy uh, Menendez, I think his name is, or Melendez. I can't remember his uh, name. But um, in the mid-70s or late 70s, he uh, wrote a book called UFO Contact at Pascagoula. And he talked about the original thing, but he also talked about later contacts and messages he got, he said, from space from space people. And also uh, subsequent uh, sightings he had, one with his entire family. So... You know, uh, so it's uh, his story is not as simple as, as you would think. And, and Calvin Parker actually is out, has been out um, uh, talking about his experiences now, now that he's in his 60s or 70s or something like that. The, the other guy in that. But I don't think he had the uh, contact D type message that um, Charles Hickson did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've maybe. Noticed, but I've noticed I don't Parker think so. I think, he, I think he did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, he just published a book. Uh, uh, and he he was on uh, coast to coast, and he's been on a few other places. Actually, when he was on coast to coast, I was working that night, and I, and I um, wrote to him and I said, I, "It'd be nice to talk to you sometime." And he friended me on Facebook, and I haven't done it yet. I should have him on my show. I really should. Um, you should. Just to, yeah, because do you? We're on we're on uh, Skype right now. Do you see my little avatar? <laughs> That's the Pascagoula alien. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh, Adam, is there one that stands out to you? I like the uh, Carl Hunrath and Wilbur Wilkinson uh, story. Oh, yeah. And uh, they were two guys. They were, uh, as far as I'm able to figure out, they were electricians or electrical engineers who lived in uh, Racine, Wisconsin, and caught the flying saucer bug and... uh, Ended up in out in California to talk, you know, uh, chasing the saucers all the way to Georgia at Damsky and visited him at Palomar Gardens. And uh, Hunrath claimed that he had uh, created this invention with called Bosco, which <laughs> was basic, basically a black box that. Uh, it's kind of like a free energy device, but it also created a magnetic field that would uh, supposedly call down flying saucers. And uh, apparently also there, uh, he's having a conversation with Adamski there at one point, and he said it uh, could also possibly... Uh, bring down military aircraft and uh, Damsky didn't like that idea <laughs> so much and uh, he shared that with uh, Hunrath and Hunrath basically said I don't care, we want the saucers <laughs> <laughs> There's a t-shirt 
<laughs> and uh, so they had a falling out. Uh, and uh, Hunrath was associated with uh, George Hunt Williamson, Hunrath and Wil- Wilkinson. And so they started kind of uh, traveling or traveling around and they went out to uh, Prescott, Arizona or Winslow, Arizona for different locations where uh, Williamson was, where Williamson was doing his work with uh, shortwave radios, supposedly uh, contacting the ETs and also using that uh, uh, Ouija board type of uh, device, you know, so it was kind of a combination of science, uh, technology, and also uh, using magic or spiritualism to contact uh, the ETs. And according to Nick Redfern in one of his books, uh, I haven't tracked down all of this, but Nick told me he saw it uh, somewhere in his research. There were also uh, messing around with psychedelic uh, drugs as part of this uh, process or method of contacting the ETs. And at one point or another, they all started believing they were different uh, ETs or they were channeling ETs. It was all getting very strange. Then they ended up back in L.A. Uh, where Wilkerson had brought his uh, wife out, uh, Hunrath was unmarried but uh, at, at some point uh, they were they had a little uh, room set up at uh, Wilkerson's house where they were putting uh, they're basically channeling ETs and uh, channeling the script that they were writing on butcher paper it was hung up on the uh, walls and uh, then they disappeared, and this was chronicled in a uh, newspaper story from the uh, L.A. Mirror, I think it was called. This was early early on. This was like 52 or 53, and I don't have the uh, passage in the book open, but basically the title of the story was that uh, Hubby is Kidnapped by Flying Saucers. And they interviewed uh, Wilkinson's wife, and uh, she said that the two men had uh, planned a rendezvous with a flying saucer out in the desert, and they rented a uh, airplane from the uh, Gardenia Airport and uh, took off from there, and that was the last they were ever seen. Dun, wow. dun, dun. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, now they... they were- Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. There was a rumor, I think, that Mosley put in one of his uh, Saucer News uh, magazines that they were that the that their plane had been found in the mountains, um, not crashed, but in pieces, as if it had been dismantled piece by piece. Um, which who knows <laughs> where that it, it came from? A, a crazy woman who used to write to him. Um, the other thing is that. Uh, I was trying to do research for this at one point, thinking I'd write a book on it, um, which is still kind of sitting there burbling up. Um, Nick Redfern actually encouraged me to write it up. But um, I found out there was a there was a Gardena airport and then there was another airport right near there. But the Gardena airport, I believe, was the only one that actually rented planes. So that was a clue as to where it came from. And, and that uh, I'm trying to figure out... Uh, 
I, I, the trail has gone cold, but I'm, I'm, I was trying to do some forensics, and uh, there's a few places online that actually track down old um, records of air, air crashes, mm-hmm. like, you know, everything. So I was trying to figure out, you know, because you can say that they were never found, but maybe they were, and just nobody's right. ever bothered to check up on it. So Right. Uh, it's buried somewhere and just all that information. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it, too. I've seen stuff posted on the web where people are going, this was a fake story made up. Well, I mean, that'd be something to do, too. You're checking out, try to track down if they ever found wreckage of the plane. Look into these uh, two individuals, Hunrath and Wilkinson, and, you know, make sure <laughs> they were actual people because. I don't doubt that they were, but the L.A. Mirror, they seemed to uh, have some, like, fringy stories back in the day, you know? So I'm a little little bit dubious on some level about all of this. Sure. Well, Gemma, this has been excellent. Um, Where can people get the book? Um, Is it... I heard that there's a color version coming out. Is that... There will be. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. still working on it but yeah a deluxe expensive color version yeah it'll be expensive <laughs> um amazon is the place to get it it is published by uh by me basically we yeah. published i independently published because uh rightly pressed. yeah i did yeah <laughs> might be the one and only book from Greatly Press. There might be a downer book, but basically did it myself, ourselves, because I knew to do the type of book I wanted to do is going to be hard to get a publisher interested or that there would have to be a lot of work <laughs> kind of trying to uh, get some uh, – publishers interested in i just didn't want to put in that time and so went the uh, self-publication route and i'm i'm happy with how it's uh, come yeah. out yeah awesome you did a great job it's a great big coffee table book great conversation piece i mean it's you know it's really good i'm gonna have to get a copy myself i've just been reading adam's yeah, cool. with a stunning cover by uh, red pill junkie oh, yes. oh yeah shout out, shout I, out I mean, to red another pill. stunning cover <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's chock full of photographs. Every, well, almost every uh, contactee has a photograph so you can see what they look like. There was a few in there that uh, I couldn't find photographs, so we put old saucer photos in there. But yeah, a lot of uh, <laughs> cool photos and yeah, the great cover and uh, kind of a, uh, you can just uh, at your leisure, uh, they're, you know, for the most part, uh, the entries themselves are pretty quick reads. So, yeah, a perfect coffee table book, or if you want to haul that beast into the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen, thank you so much. We're going to close out this section, uh, but uh, we'll be back. Close out the show on Conspirator Normal.
that we are. So another fun-filled, uh, um, not quite a story episode, but a um, compilation. You know, I like the compilation books. This is a really good comprehensive uh, just overview of the how bizarre contactee stories can get and, you know, just without a no overarching theme, just a here's the stories, here's the the witness testimonies and that and that sort of thing. I think it's a really cool idea. I think they did a really good job with it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't get as far into the book as I've as I thought that uh, I really should, but I mean, we definitely had a, that was like a nearly two hour interview with those two guys. Yeah. Hour 45. Yeah. I mean, it's a big, cool. We've had them both on before. So, you know, kind of, you know, everybody knows each other, but, (laughs) um, part of the reason I didn't get a lot of chances because we went on a trip. Yep. Uh, Stepson is here from the Navy, and... When he says we, he means him and Sir Fail. Yeah, 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 Rob. Rob, we left Rob to uh, to man the fort, make sure... I that, wasn't invited. I wouldn't have gone, but I wasn't invited. I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> we need to invite Rob to things just so he can say, no, I can't go. Exactly. But thanks for inviting me anyway, guys. I really appreciate it. We did invite Luke. Yeah, and of course he crapped out crap but uh you know surfiel went yes so we went, we went down there with uh surfiel's kind of got invited last minute and we did a little video of some things that we saw there we went to gulf breeze where there was a big ufo flap in the 80s and didn't we, see any ufos we did not see any ufos try to contact them with a short wave and we might have yeah we <laughs> We went to uh, we went to the Futuro House, which is like a UFO shaped house that is in, on Pensacola Beach, which is really cool. And we're gonna try to contact the owners. Yes, yeah. There's a weird synchronicity there with the owners. Um, I'm like 95 percent positive that I know. Yeah, who that is. We we found out that the owner, the owners of the house, live in Nashville. I mean, how strange is that? Um, and we ended up somehow in Pensacola, we ended up in a Mardi Gras, the earliest in the country. On so, the 12th night. We posted that little 15 minute, what was it, 15 minutes? Yeah. Is that 15. Yeah. It's my we, directorial debut. Yeah, that's right. Sir Fields directorial debut with his GoPro camera. Um, if you want to see that it's on Patreon right now. Um, it's an exclusive for our patrons. We will probably put it up on YouTube eventually. Uh, but for a little while, we're just going to keep it up there just for the patrons only. So, um, we got a nice surprise over Christmas. Yes. Actually Christmas day. Uh, we received a $100 Patreon. And I want to give a shout out to John Jay. Yes. Who really, Thank you, John. He really you. enjoys the show. Um, he was someone that uh, knows that heard our Dr. Future episode. And he really appreciated it. And he decided that he wanted to give some money to the show to 
to support what we do. So we want to thank him just honestly, truly. I mean, that, that made a world of difference. That doubled our Patreon earning like that. So we're at about like $200 a month, which uh, I'm happy about. But, uh, you know, that we if you guys want to support us, uh, we can bring even more quality to the show. I mean, we can use that sure. to buy We're officially things. turning a profit after six years. <laughs> yes, we are now turning a profit. Yeah. Um, and to go to Patreon and to find all of our other stuff, where do they need to go, Mr. Rob? Uh, Patreon.com slash Conspiranormal. And there's, there's various tiers. Most of the content is available for, I think, $5 a month subscription. Um, there's... Yeah, there's other tiers. You know, there's a, I think ten dollars a month. We got a bunch of wallpapers up there and various other things. But if you just want the, most of the bonus content, the bonus episodes, and the um, you know, the link to the new video and all that stuff's the the five dollars subscription. If you don't want to subscribe, you don't want a monthly bill. Uh, you can do a one time donation at our website at conspiranormal.com. And if you want to help support the show, but you don't want to spend money doing it, you can always just give us a five star review on iTunes or Stitcher wherever you listen, and just tell your friends about us. Absolutely. And uh, by the way, happy 2019. Yes. It is going to be a good year, Adam. It is going to be a good year, man. feel it. There's going to be a lot of parties, Rob. Lots of parties. We're going lots of places. Lots of karaoke. Yeah. Lots of scotch. I'm feeling it. It's going to be a good year. (laughs) (laughs) More liver damage, but that's okay. Yeah. Well, (laughs) who needs that anyway? I'm up for it. (laughs) All right, guys. Um, Next week, I've got scheduled... Robert Bonomo. We're going to be talking to him about a film that he made called The 21 Faces of God, and that is about tarot. And the week after that, we're going to be bringing our good friend Soraya back on the show on Where Did the Road Go? From Where Did the Road Go? So um, we've been going, Surfiel and I have been going on there a lot lately. So it felt like it's it's time to get Soraya back on the show. It's been three years since he's been like kind of solo. He's come on a lot for like um, round tables and all that, but just to get it back solo, I think is important to do. So, all right, guys, stay tuned. We got a lot of good things coming. I'm really excited about this year, and we'll see you next week on Conspiranormal. Break it all, Rob. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
guidebook, guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.